Well, this morning, if you have a Bible, let's turn to the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 2. And uh, last time we looked at verses 1 through 7, where we saw that Joshua sends over to the land of Canaan the two spies, and they are sent out there to spy out actually the city of Jericho. This will be the first city in which they're going to fight against. It's a walled city, and thus uh, there has to be some defense or offense ready. And so uh, Joshua sends over these two spies in order to find out and to see the strength and the weaknesses of those of the city. But as we mentioned, that's not the only reason as to why Joshua sends out these two spies, maybe perhaps unknowingly to Joshua. But as we mentioned last time, behind all this was God moving. He's working and he's directing in his providence to deliver some of his elect uh, from the city that was going to be destroyed. And from this truth, then we can learn two things. First of all, We can see an encouragement in this. And then secondly, we can see a great warning. The encouragement comes from 1 Timothy chapter 4. The very fact that God is going to deliver his people, take care of them. Uh, That's how it's expressed in 1 Timothy, for instance, chapter 4 and verse 10. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior, and that word there happens to mean in the sense of a, of a deliverance, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. And so he was the Savior or the deliverer of Rahab and her family if they too were converted. Also, First Peter, we see the warning then. First Peter chapter 4, verse 17, For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God, and if... If it first began at us, what shall the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? If the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? And we see that in the life of Rahab and also the inhabitants there of Jericho. They didn't make it, but Rahab and her family did. So there is a timely exhortation, a timely encouragement to realize that God does deliver His people. But at the same time, though, there is the threatening from Scripture that He does carry out His judgment upon men. Now, last time we saw also that Rahab has received the spies into her home and she hides them from the king. And in this, as we read from the book of Hebrews and also from the book of James, this was a demonstration of her faith by which, of course, we know her to be justified. That is, she was saved by faith alone. But she demonstrated that faith, showed her faith by the hiding of the spies. And also we went over the issue about whether this was a lie and whether it was a transgression of God's law. We're not going to get into that because I have no further light than I had last week when we talked about that. So there's no need to go any further into that issue, whether she was lying before God as she was trying to hide uh, the spies there. Now, this morning, we want to take up cha- uh, verse 8, and we're going to try to get all the way down through verse 24 this morning in the time that we have allotted for our lesson. So, we want to take up verse 8. Let me read, first of all, verses 8 down through verse 13. And here we see her confession and her pleading. This is Rahab's confession and her pleading. And notice again what this confession is based upon. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. And therefore they were laid down, that is the spies, she came up unto them upon the roof. 
And she said unto the men, I know that the Lord hath given you the land, and that your terror is fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when ye came out of Egypt, and what ye did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side of Jordan, Shihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt, neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. Now, therefore, I pray you, swear unto me by the Lord, since I have showed you kindness, that you will also show kindness unto my father's house, and give me a true token, and that you will save alive my father and my mother and my brethren and my sisters and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. Notice here her confession and also her pleading on the behalf of her family members. We see here in verse 8, of course, she tells the spies to go up and lay down, and that's where they're at on top of the roof there. And then she goes up to them, and beginning there in verse 9, she, we notice something of her confession. She states here, I know. So she's very assured of what is about ready to transpire. And she bases this foreknowledge of what's going to take place upon some of the past dealings that God has had with his enemies. And notice that she knows this assuredly, but also so does the other people. That is, there's others of the land who also are very aware of what God has done. You notice here there is a dread upon them. Notice verse 9 again. And she said unto the men, I know that the Lord hath given you the land, and that your terror is fallen upon us. There's plural. And that all the inhabitants of the land, notice this, faint because of you. So it's not just Rahab who knows something of this, but also the inhabitants of the land are very aware of what God can do and will do. Now notice in verse 10, we see some of the groundwork as to why they have this fear. This, And I'd have to say it's a supernatural fear, that it's a fear that God has put in their hearts, not in a saving sense, as we'll show here in a little bit, but in the fact that they are scared to death of this nation that's going to come in and try to take over. Now notice what the inhabitants have heard. We see that in verse 10 and 11. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. Now stop there. How long ago was that? Well, if we know anything of the history of Israel at the time, that was 40 years ago. She's talking about an incident that took place 40 years previously, that is when God parted the Red Sea and He drowned the armies of Pharaoh. This wasn't something that happened yesterday or last week or the week before. This is something, though it's very fresh in their mind, yet it took place 40 years ago from the time that she says this. So this is an amazing thing, isn't it? Forty years previously, she brings up, well, we remember what's happened at the Red Sea. She also brings up some more incidents, how that God had destroyed the Amorites and uh, those two kings. They're in verse 10. And then notice verse 11, we see the horror of it all. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts did melt. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. And then she says, for the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and in earth Beneath, And here she recognizes then that Jehovah is 
the God. Notice it's the word Lord there in all caps. That's in our authorized version. That means Jehovah or what we think of as Jehovah. So they have here then this dread upon them. In fact, it is such a dread. Notice that she uses the term there in verse 9 again. We faint. And then also in verse uh, is it 10. No, verse 11. She says, our hearts did melt. So these folks are dreading the uh, the God that's that is apparently dwelling with the Israelites across the river. Now, actually, this is something that God had promised that he would do. He would put this kind of dread, he would put this kind of fear into their hearts. Back in the law, you remember in chapter, you don't have to turn there, but in chapter 23 of Exodus and verse 27, he says, uh, there sh- verse 26, There shall nothing cast their young or be barren in thy land. The number of thy days I will fulfill. I will send I will send my fear before thee, and will destroy all the people to whom thou shalt come, and I will make all thine enemies turn their backs unto thee. So here again, he's giving a description of what's going to take place in the land, and here he describes the very fact that he's going to cause them to have this fear of them as well as God himself. Uh, Deuteronomy, again, is another instance of that very thing, a promise that he tells them. He says, There shall no man be able to stand before you, for the Lord your God shall lay the fear of you and the dread of you upon all the land that ye shall tread upon, as he hath said unto you. So that's what I said. This is a supernatural, not saving, but nonetheless a supernatural fear that has come upon the inhabitants of this land. They have heard of the works of God. They have heard of this God, whether they believed He was the true God or not. They have heard of this God who is dwelling amongst the Israelites and He has caused them to fear the people who are about ready to come over. So we see here that God has moved upon the inhabitants then to have some fear of their, who will be their enemies, obviously, Israel. Which goes to show you here, God can work, but not savingly. Think about that. God can work upon the hearts of individuals, but never savingly. So just because you fear a little tinge of fear of God doesn't necessarily mean all is well. In fact, we'll show that here before we're done this morning. Well, look now in verse 12 and 13. Because of these facts, obviously, uh, Rahab does have the fear of God in the saving sense in her heart, faith, as we learn from Hebrews 11 and also James chapter 2. We see here that she has faith, and based upon what she hears and her faith, she then pleads for her family in verses 12 through 13. Now, therefore, I pray you, swear unto me by the Lord, since I have showed you kindness, that you will also show kindness unto my father's house, and give me a true token. And that you will save alive my father and my mother and my brethren and my sisters and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. So we see her based upon that. She pleads then for her family. Apparently her family is not dwelling with her. Remember, her previous occupation was a harlot. She was a fornicator. She was a very wicked woman until God comes and separates her from her sins and the love of sin and the love of uh, and the dominion of sin over her, she was a harlot. In fact, as we noticed, you remember in the New Testament, actually she's mentioned three times, and I think twice uh, each time it's made mention that she was a harlot. Not that she continued in that sinful lifestyle, because that would be opposite of what true salvation is, but 
that that was what she was known as. She was a, a whore or a harlot according to the Word of God. And so her parents are not living with her. Apparently her brothers and her sisters are not. And so she pleads on behalf of them. She knows that they are here. She knows that they're going to destroy everything, uh, kill. And so she's concerned about her family. A very touching and a very natural thing, much less a spiritual thing to be concerned for her family. Note here that she's so persuaded about what she has heard, even those things 40 years ago, that she is now taking these precautions. So we see here, fear of God and faith in God does not rule out that we're to use sanctified common sense. We are to use precautions in our daily lives. If I lived in a bad neighborhood, I would not be so bold to say, well, I trust God, I'm going to leave my windows and my doors wide open. No, we will take precautions, won't we? We'll lock the doors and we'll lock our windows at night or when I leave so that we won't have anyone break in and steal what little we may have. Well, that's not being, uh, that's not being foolish and that's not being unfaithful, nor is that being an idea of not having a fear of God. That's working in those things, the means which God has given us to uh, think through by the grace of God. Now, notice verse 14. The men here agree to this. And the men answer her, Our life for yours, if ye utter not this our business, and it shall be when the Lord hath given us the land, that we will deal kindly and truly with thee. So here, the men swear then to her that they will do as she says. Only though, if she fulfills her word. Notice, our life for yours. So here was the deal uh, that these men make work out with her. She wants to have her and her family delivered. They say, we will do so if you spare us, or at least you don't give us over. So it will be our life for yours. And then notice 15 and 16, uh, she further helps them to escape. Now again, remember, this is all by faith. Verse 15, Then she let them down by a cord through the window, for her house was upon the town wall, and she dwelt upon the wall. And she said unto them, Get you to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you, and hide yourselves there three days, until the pursuers be returned, and afterward may ye go your way. So she further expounds unto them which way to go, how to escape. Remember, she's already rescued them from the beginning. There in verses 3 through 6. And now because the pursuers had already come to her house and she has sent them away, she's fearful that she may, they may, as they leave, they may meet them on return. So she tells them then to skedaddle, as it were, and go to the mountains and stay there for a certain time. Obviously the men here are very thankful for her advice. And again, she does this based on faith. This is her faith that again, Cause her, causes her to be cautious, but also helpful to these men. And then notice verses 17 through 21. We see the men speak again, and they uh, go their way. And the men said unto her, We will be blameless of this thine oath which thou hast made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, thou shalt bind this line of scarlet thread in the window which thou didst let us down by, and thou shalt bring thy father and thy mother and thy brethren and all thy father's household home unto thee. 
And it shall be that whosoever shall go out of the doors of thy house into the street, his blood shall be upon his head, and we will be guiltless. And whosoever shall be with thee in the house, his blood shall be upon our head, if any hand be upon him. If thou utter this our business, then we will quit of thine oath which thou hast made us to swear. And she said, According unto your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed, and she bound the scarlet line in the window. So we see here that they speak to her again. They make it just a little more explicit. Uh, They tell her what she must do. You must bring your family here with you into this home. Uh, put out this yellow or red cord that's going to remind us that this is your house. She remember she had previously asked for a token. Back in verse 12, she says, "And give me a true token." This is the token apparently that she desires, and that will be the the uh, red line laying out of the of the window, so they will be able to recognize as they come up to the walls. Aha! There's the red line coming out of that window. Let's leave that house alone. We're not to go in it. We are to spare that household because of the men swearing unto Rahab. So they make this deal or this oath between each other. And apparently she agrees, as we see there in verse 21. And she said, according unto your words, so be it. And she sent them away and they departed. And she bound the scarlet line in the window. Here again, she does this by faith. She believes the testimony. Of these men, she believes the testimony of what's taken place. She believes the testimony that if they lay out this cord, or she lays out this cord, then they will uh, respect that, and they will cause her and her household then to live. And then notice verse 22, they leave. And they went and came unto the mountain, and abode there three days, and the pursuers were returned. And the pursuers sought them throughout all the way, but found them not. So we see the advice that Rahab gave them was very applicable, didn't it? It worked. And so she apparently knew something of the lay of the land, was very helpful to them. And so they're able to escape. And then in verse 23 through 24, we see their return and they give their good report to Joshua. So the two men returned and descended from the mountain and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and told him all things that befell them. And they said unto Joshua, Truly, The Lord hath delivered into our hands all the land, for even all the inhabitants of the country do faint because of us. So here we see here these two spies recall what God had promised back in the law, that he was going to cause the inhabitants of the land for their hearts to melt, for them to be faint. And they give testimony, this is what's taken place. Um, You you remember we mentioned how last week as Joshua sent out the two spies, how that must have remembered him being one of the twelve spies, him and Caleb, that went over and spied out the land of Canaan some forty years previous to this. And so I'm sure this is still in his mind. And when they come back, you're wondering, well, are they going to give us a good report or are they going to give us a bad report? Are they going to be like their fathers who sinned in the wilderness or are they going to be um, true men and obey the word of God and trust his promises? Well, we see here that they do obey God and they do believe the promises and they see for themselves that all the inhabitants of the country do faint, he says, because of them. Well, what do we learn from verses 8 down through verse 24? Here will be the application to what we'll deal with this morning. First of all, we learn here that there is a fear that is saving, such as in Rahab's case, and there is a fear that comes upon men that is not saving, which will, of course, be the Uh, the remainder of the inhabitants of Canaan. 
especially in the inhabitants of of uh, Jericho at this time. So get this under your theological belt here this morning. There is a fear that is saving. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And there is a fear of the Lord that does not save. And there are many brethren, there are many out there who fear God. They have a fear of God. They fear hell. They fear judgment. They'll even tell you this, but it does not turn them from their sins. Yes, they're fearful that they're going to fall into the hands of a righteous God. They're fearful that they do believe something of the preaching of the Word. They may even get scared sitting in their seats while they hear the Word of God being proclaimed that there is a hell and there is a heaven. There is a God and there is judgment. There is sin and there is accountability for those sins. But it does not move them to repent. There are many like that. You say, can that happen? Well, obviously it can. Can they have fear of God and it not being saving? Yes. Look over in 2 Kings. Look in chapter 17. 2 Kings chapter 17. Now, this is uh, during the days of, obviously, the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. hope I got the right passage here. Yes. Here he's talking about some of the, the inhabitants of Israel, that is the northern tribe. And it says here, so they notice the terminology in verse 32 of Second Kings 17. So they feared the Lord. Notice that. They feared God. They feared Jehovah. And what did they do? And made unto themselves the lowest of them priests of the high off places, which sacrificed for them in the houses of the high places. They feared the Lord and served other gods after the manner of the nations whom they carried away from thence. Ah, so there is a fear then that doesn't do any good. There is a fear of God. There is a dread of God that may cause men's hearts to melt and yet does not move them unto the fear of the Lord. Look in verse 41. So these nations feared the Lord and served their graven images both their children and their children's children, as did their fathers, so do they unto this day. So the fear of God in and of itself may not mean anything. So brethren, if you fear the Lord, let us hope then there is a true turning from sin. Don't say you fear God and then go home still wedded to your idols, to your sins. And that's where often... Well, we find folks, isn't it? We hear people come to church. Oh, boy, we just love it here. I can't believe how much we hear the Word of God here and the seriousness of worship. Never see them again. Never hear them, see them coming back through the doors to hear all this great preaching and to see the seriousness of God's saints as they sit before Him and worship God. You see, there can be a fear that's saving and there can be a fear that is not saving. So we better examine our hearts to see which one way. You say, well, how do I know? I fear God. I fear judgment. I fear hell. Well, good. That is, those things are great. We ought to have that. But does it move you to depart from sin? And that's the issue. That's whether you know you have saving fear or not. 
Secondly, as we noted a little bit earlier, saving faith and saving fear, though, does not rule out caution and care. You know, even becoming a Christian, Jesus tells us we had better count the cost, didn't He? Just don't jump into this. Don't just say, oh, wow, that's really great news. I'm going to believe. And then not recognize that there is a life ahead of you of mortifying sin, hating ungodliness, and living holy before you. You better count the cost if you want to be a true believer because you're going to lose family members. You're going to lose loved ones. You're going to lose your friends, which are not true friends, but nonetheless, you may call them friends. Because this is the sort of thing that godliness brings. True salvation brings a life at times of hardship. Persecution comes upon those who will live godly in Christ Jesus, the Scripture tells us. So, even in the very entrance of salvation, we see then there is to be caution and care. Well, it doesn't change once we are Christians. We're still to be cautious. We're still to take care. Rahab didn't say here in all this, well, I know, I believe in God, and I think He's going to take care of my family, and I'm just going to let go, let God. She doesn't. What does she do? She makes provisions here for her household. She covenants with these men here to... Uh, save her family. In fact, the spies did too. What did they do? Did they just stand on the rooftop and say, Aha, God's going to protect me? No, He doesn't. They hide themselves, don't they? They get under the flax underneath the roof. They're, They're not stupid. So you see, faith doesn't make us stupid. In fact, it gives us a sound mind. Makes us cautious. Makes us realize things that we never realized before, for that matter. And it also makes us very careful. Not an anxious carefulness that we see that we're told not to do in Scripture, but a cautiousness against sin, against our own dangers that are out there. And then the last thing I want to bring out here, there is no sinner so great that God cannot save. Some of you sitting here may think, well, you don't know the sins I've committed Perhaps not, and I don't want to know, actually. But I tell you what, were you as wicked as Rahab, who had a lifestyle of idolatry? She was a heathen. She was a fornicator. She made her living. She made her trade. She made her. Uh, she worked by the sweat of her brow, being a harlot. And yet God saved her. We see the grace of God being magnified here. In fact, remember I said there's three places in which Rahab is mentioned in the New Testament. Two, one, one is in James, the other one's in Hebrews, and the other one's in the first, God, first chapter of the book of Matthew, where she, where her name is Rachel, I think there, and she's in the lineage of our Lord Jesus. So can you imagine? Here is a harlot who is saved by the grace of God, obviously magnifying His goodness and His mercy and His grace upon her, but also she becomes in line of being the one who is going to bear the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. That's the grace of God, isn't it? Well, we'll close there and we'll pick up with chapter 3, Lord willing, next time.